I'm Regan Brandt, and this is the Insurance Chatter. What is the insurance industry talking about? What problems are InsurTech solving? What trends are agents, brokers, underwriters, and executives thinking about? Every week, I sit down with a different person from across the insurance industry to discuss what's happening in their niche markets. I want to give you a behind-the-scenes look at risk, technology, data, and culture within one of the most exciting business sectors. Follow along to get pumped and see where the insurance industry is headed. Today, I'm sitting down with Peter Hearn, the Chief Executive Officer of Guy Carpenter and Company and member of the Marsh and McLennan Company's Executive Committee. Peter has impacted countless lives through his dedication to the insurance industry. He started as an intern at Willis Faber and Dumas in London in 1974, and after 44 years of working in the insurance industry, he's still going strong. Listen in as he tells how he got his start in the insurance industry. Yeah, I've lived I've lived a vagabond life most of my career, uh, particularly since uh, when I was the CEO of Willis and really Willis Re, and then the CEO of Guy Carpenter. My my family lived everywhere that I did, um, and so. Uh, I sort of bounce between traveling all over the world and trying to figure out where they are so I can see them on occasion. And uh, I don't recommend it. Um, I tried not to miss the big stuff, but, uh, you know, it's a demanding job and uh, unfortunately involves a tremendous amount of travel and time away from your family, which, again, is is tough on everybody. But somehow we've, we've seemed to manage it all. But uh, right now I'm in uh, I'm in Colorado, but I've been back in the East Coast, back in Philadelphia uh, and started to travel again, which is the nicest thing, because Two years of no travel has been and no kinetic connection to clients and colleagues and markets has been difficult to say the least. No one grows up being like, I'm going to be in insurance. So I know you were kind of getting started on that. How in the world did you get into this industry? Yeah, well, I kind of fell into it. Um, I uh, I went to college in Illinois. I'd like to say to study uh, law and finance, but it probably was more ice hockey, uh, lacrosse and women. And um after my sophomore year, I told my father I was going to take some time off and be a semi-pro hockey player in Sun Valley and pound nails with a buddy of mine who was a carpenter. And he thought it'd be a better idea if I went to the United States Marine Corps. Oh, so we compromised and uh, thank God. Yeah. Um, and I went and did a semester abroad, a year abroad in, in, in London, worked, studied there. And then school was from eight in the morning till 12. And he said, well, what are you going to do after 12 o'clock? And I'm like, what I do here, drink and chase girls. <laughs> yeah. He goes, wrong, bar, uh, wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he had a friend who was in, who worked for a company who was then called Willis Faber and Duma. And um, he said, I'll, I'll arrange for you to go work for them. So I worked in their statutory and gap accounting department for a whole year. Okay. Um, occasionally they let me go into Lloyd's and get an endorsement scratch. They really didn't know what I was doing, but it sure seemed interesting. And then I graduated from college and was headed to law school. And the man I worked for in London called me up and said, would you consider coming over here and working for a few years with us? And I thought about it. And I said, well, if my, my father puts you up to it, the answer is no. And he goes, no, he knows nothing about it. So I thought, you know, I'm 21. What the hell? The worst thing that happened is it doesn't work out. I go back to law school. And that was the start. Uh, October 1st, 1978, Willis Faber and Dumas, and 54 Leadenhall Street in London. So uh, that's where it, What did you kind of start with? I, well, the... You know, the thing about the English is they have these wonderful world words for, for things that they do. I was in what was called the supernumerary scheme, 
which I think is a nice way of saying all the dog work that no one else wants to do, you get to do. But it was really a rotational system and you, you rotated through departments. So I did a few years doing uh, North American um, direct primary casualty business. And then I did facultative business and I did marine business. And then the last two years I was there, I did um, North American treaty reinsurance. The, then I went, I came back and I moved to, to Philadelphia and worked for a firm called Towers Perrin, Foster and Crosby. Okay. Uh, they had a reinsurance business. Um, at one point, it was the biggest reinsurer in the United States in the 60s. Over time, they sort of minimized that and grew their managing consulting business. And now, it, it, what today is Willis, yep. its roots are Towers Watson. So, okay. um, uh, And I was there for 13 years. And then in 1994, my boss, who I, well, one of my bosses who I worked for when I was in London, had become in charge of all of Willis's reinsurance. And at that point, they had bought a company in the United States called Karuna Black. Okay. And... Um, they had a reinsurance business that had been a very, very good boutique business in the late 80s. And the principals who started it retired. And by the time we walked in there, uh, it, it was on its knees. It was, I mean, it was one part electrifying, one part terrifying, because every day you didn't know whether you were going to make it or break it. So it was a wonderful learning experience. Um, and I served in multiple capacities there from the head of the Philadelphia office to the head of sales to president of the U.S., to global CEO um, and chairman eventually. And then uh, in 2015, I was approached by Dan Glazer and Peter Savino um, to run Guy Carpenter. And uh, I thought long and hard about it and I'm a very loyal person. Um, but Willis was going through some issues at the time. Uh, right after I left, they were sold. Um, and uh, or they, they bought Towers Perrin, though it would appear from what actually happened to Towers Perrin bought them. Yeah. But in any event, um, I, I've just completed five and a half years as CEO of, uh, of Guy Carpenter. So I was very fortunate. I made a lot of decisions that fortunately worked out for me. Uh, they could equally have blown up. Um, and uh, there were days where when we were first at Willis Re, I would hold onto the sink every morning and say, God, just get me through another day. I had a wife, three infant children and a new house. And it was terrifying. Is there anyone along the way you kind of credit as being, you know, a big mentor to you really saying, okay, I'm going to make this, this is someone I'm kind of modeling myself after, or? You know, along the way in life, I, I, I think having mentors is probably the most important thing you can have. So much to tell you about what not to do as opposed to what to do. Yeah. Um, and I was fortunate that all my mentors never told me what to do. They gave me clues that allowed me to figure it out, which... At the time, I really didn't understand, but in time, I grew to appreciate that they were teaching me, but they were teaching me the way I should learn, not the way they were going to teach me. Yeah. And so, you know, I had Jay Fishman from Travelers. I had a guy, a gentleman by the name of John Donahue, who was a very senior person at the Hartford. I had a gentleman by the name of Frank Tasco, who was the uh, CEO of Marsh McLennan. Wow. He was previous the CEO of Guy Carpenter, um, uh, a very wise man by the name of Edward Netter, was also he was not he was in the insurance business but as an investor was um, was a was a mentor to me so I, I I consider myself incredibly fortunate because they taught me what not to do how to conduct myself how to be a professional how to be humble in victory and gracious in defeat how to you know compete how to win how to handle defeat uh, which uh, I fear today a lot of people don't know how to learn from failure and. I, I don't even like the word failure because it's such an important part of our life because it's a learning experience and it's only failure if you don't learn from it. And I find too many people because everybody gets the gold star, everybody gets a statue, everybody's wonderful. 
when they get into the real world where there's a very, you know, binary, somebody wins and somebody loses, you got to wrap your mind around that. So I'm going to kind of pivot on you into COVID and you touched on it a little bit um, in your kind of business, you know, especially reinsurance. What was the COVID experience like for you guys? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I, I, I hear a lot of people say, I feel like I lost two years and yeah. I feel like I learned two more years yeah. of my life, business life, because everything we knew got stood on its head. Yeah. And and for however however much people blaspheme Zoom, thank God for Zoom. What would we have done? Yeah. And yeah. it kept us connect, you know, connected virtually, which is very different from, you know, a physical or kinetic um, connection. But I think for us, it started with one single premise. The most important thing was physically, mentally, and financially to get our 3,500 colleagues and their family through all of this. That was number one priority. We reiterated reiterated it every time we spoke to our colleagues. Um, And so that was, was, I think, the right thing to do. Um, And equally, we stayed very connected to our clients because Zoom not only allowed you to, to stay connected all the time, but instead of bringing 10 people to somebody's office in Des Moines, Iowa, you could do it on a Zoom. Yeah. Do you get out of Zoom what you get out of an interpersonal relationship? That's to be determined. I don't know, for example, whether virtual trust can be created at the same level as as actual uh, trust yeah. can be built based on longstanding personal relationships. But I think the big things that, that we see going forward is, is culture. Yeah. You know, is there an insidious threat to culture by people not being back to work? And I think there are two things. I think there's, there's the return to the office, and then there's the future of work. Yeah. They're two different things, and people look at them as one. I think for us, we believe office-based, project-based, experiential learning business. And we want to test that hypothesis with everybody back to say, do we think this is still correct? If it is, what do we need to do to make it more tolerable to people? Yeah. And if there are ways we can flex it to make life easier on people, we'll certainly do that. And, you know, I worry mostly about our younger colleagues because so much of this business is about at this stage, the early stage of your about networking, yeah. exposure, uh, mentoring, uh, learning and development. You know, you get this massive amount of information thrown at you and learning how to process that and understanding our business and, and meeting people and building these relationships that are so important, but also le- learning the technical dynamics of our business because it's changed so fundamentally since I started, you know, 44 years ago. Yeah, well, and that kind of pivots right into, I mean, you nailed it on the head. You know, for me, and obviously I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit, I'm in my late 30s, but a lot of these people that I'm talking to right out of college, you know, insurance industry has this negative connotation. They're not getting into it. They don't think it is a good career path to go into. How are you guys, you know, kind of creating a culture or trying to incent young talent? Well, it's a good question. There are a couple of things. First of all, we've been on a, a pretty torrid hiring uh, tear since the start of COVID. We've hired about 860 people globally. Now, a lot of that, a lot of that was we were the beneficiaries of the disruption that was created by the Aon Willis failed merger, yep. and having, uh, and so you know, it gave us the opportunity to hire talent all over the world, and we took full advantage of it. It was a, a once in a lifetime uh, opportunity, um, and like a lot of companies in our business, you know, there's an, there's a generational issue because we're top heavy in sort of 50 plus years of age. And so we were trying to replenish our ranks of younger colleagues as quickly as we can. But to your question, you know, I think that the insurance industry does itself a disservice. I mean, flow and the gecko and mayhem and all the things you see on TV, they're they're funny and they catch your eye. But 
The insurance business is the DNA of capitalism. Yep. We, we can't be sitting in our respective houses. We can't get in a plane, a train, a car, a bus. You know, I think it would be really powerful one day if the heads of the insurance companies went down to the World Trade Center and said, you know who rebuilt this? Yeah. Us. Or go to a ravaged part of Florida or the East Coast or the Midwest after a tornado. Say, you know who's going to rebuild this? Us. Yeah. You know, we, in the moments that matter, we step up. We're there for people. We rebuild lives, businesses, careers, communities. And I, I think that that's lost in, in a lot of things because it is everything that this, you know, the, it oils the wheels of, of capitalism. And uh, it's a wonderful business for, because, as I said, when I started, you either were in claims accounting or you were a broker. Yeah. Now there's so many paths you could take. You could be on all, you could be high-end claims and accounting, you could be in analytics, you could be in advisory, you could be in capital markets, you could be in structured solutions, um, you can be uh, anywhere in the world that you want to go. Um, and so it gives people, you know, and it depends on the individual. It's not, it's not for everybody, obviously, but, you know, I've seen very smart people not do well and people who weren't you know, academic heavyweights do incredibly well. It's a, it's a real combination of, of some smarts, common sense, competitiveness, yep. <laughs> um, and reading and understanding people. Someone once asked me, what's, what job taught you the most about your career? And I said, being a caddy. And I went, what? I said, you learn about people on a golf course. Yep. You know, who's nice, who's nasty, who cheats, yep. who gives you a tip, who doesn't, who talks to you, who doesn't. You know, how to calm somebody down when they're really upset that they just had a 13 on a hole, you know. And so it, it, there, there are a lot of life lessons that that taught me. And one day I was with a young colleague and we were driving to Merrill, Wisconsin to see a client, a prospect. And he was young and we were driving along. I said, John, what do you want out of this meeting? He goes, I want the guy to like me. And I said, you know what? That's absolutely right. That's what yep. it starts with. Yep. You build a connection. And then you throw in trust and respect and performance, and then you build a relationship on that. So I I think it's a business that really does itself a disservice because not many people know about, I mean, not many people know about the insurance yep. business. People Less people know about the reinsurance oh, business. Absolutely. So when you say reinsurance, their eyes kind of roll in the back of their head and they start drooling and begging for oxygen because they don't know what you're talking yep. about. But it's a fascinating business. And, you know, the, the, the connections and the friendships I've made over 44 years, I, I hold very dear and, you know, they, they, they framed my life yeah. and uh, I was very fortunate in, in my career and, um, but it's a wonderful business and there's so many avenues it can take you that, and, and the problem is most people have never even heard of it. I always like asking people, you know, kind of off the cuff, when you hear InsureTech, what kind of comes to mind for you? I think... What I've seen so far is you have very bright, very bright technological people who are learning the insurance business. And it is a complicated business. And I think people who have come in to disrupt the business have found that it's a very hard industry to penetrate. Yep. People who come in and say, we're trying to enhance the business have met with more success, but it's, it's hard. I mean, you know, you start growing like a weed and you think that's great until you see the losses that come with it yeah. and you go, oh, that's not so great. And the investors start voting with their feet. Yeah. And it, it, it takes a while to build a business and uh, it takes a while to understand, you know, how premium flows written versus earned premium. How, you know, dealing with 50 states, if you're in a, on an admitted basis, is, is complex yeah. enough. 
um, dealing with the world of reinsurance, you know, capital volatility uh, and portfolio management, um, you know, uh, regulatory issues, uh, rating issues. It's a, it's very complex and, and uh, people, I think, don't appreciate that when they come into it. They look at it as a, a, a mature industry that is technologically adrift. Yep. Um, and, and there's a lot of truth to that. But I think coming in and saying, we're going to stand this thing on its head and revolutionize the business, I, I think is, is I think people have learned that it's it's easier said than done. Totally. But I, I, I compliment them because there's some very smart people out there that are doing some really interesting stuff. We have a number of clients that uh, it's fascinating to see how they're changing the dynamics of the insurance business. So I think it's good for the industry where it all goes, time, losses, um, and maturation will we'll tell. We'll, tell. well, and then I'll, I'll kind of ask you one more because you're at the end, of, you know, not at the end of the career, not putting you there yet in that box, but, you know, closer to the end of the ride. If sure. you had to start it all over again or you were a young person, you had an unlimited balance sheet, where do you see the most opportunity in, like, in the current insurance industry we're in? I, I think that data is king. Okay. And I, I think... If looking at the world now and the world that I started in, what drives success is knowing more about your business than anybody else. And whether you run the business or you hire someone who comes in and tells you that. Yeah. I think our role as, a, as, a, as an advisor and consultant and insight provider is what drives our success. And we've really transformed Guy Carpenter from a, a trading and transactional platform to a consultative high-end advice and insight business because you know if you can solve for capital growth volatility adaptation opportunity technology the reinsurance will come yeah. but if you come in and say i don't care what your problems are i'm just here to, to to place your reinsurance get in line with every other you know bum who wants to do the same yeah. thing so I, I think to differentiate yourself is when you can start going in and talking to companies about things that they don't know about themselves that's a huge competitive advantage. It's a very compelling and differentiating proposition. And that's really what we've fostered within Guy Carpenter. And it's led to, you know, a, a significant success over the past several years and will no doubt springboard us into even more success in the future. But I, I think that, you know, we place $50 billion of premium into the global reinsurance market. So if we start to credentializing our ability to place business, I think that's the wrong conversation. Yes, it's important. Yes, we need to do it well. Yes, we need to execute on that. But that's not what the C-suite wants to know. They want to know, you know, what competitive advantages I can create. How can I grow? How do I deal with volatility? How do I deal with climate change? How do I deal with the changing nature of risk? How do I deal with, you know, parts of my business that aren't performing as well? To what at what point should I go excess and surplus lines versus yep. retail? Yep. You know, should I have an MGA strategy? So there's there's a myriad of things that we have built so that we can go in and answer all those questions. And I think. That's what I would, I, I, I believe in it. I, we fostered that at Guy Carpenter. Yeah. And I, I think that is the future of our business. We will be more consultative. I think ultimately we may start transacting in portfolios as we get more and more data yep. on our own portfolio. And then they start to create index indices. And then you can start to have secondary and tertiary trading. Perhaps it's complicated because what it means is you have to have standardized contracts. And I'm not sure the, the reinsurance buying world is ready for standardized contracts because the nuances of each individual reinsurance contract provides advantages to the carriers that we represent. 
So when you're kind of going out and getting this data, you know, currently as you guys have been changing this, is it proprietary tools that you guys have created? Are you guys plug and playing and backing like InsureTechs that are doing AI on, you know, different types of risks or different type of weather patterns, you know, things like that. What are some of the tools that you guys have invested in to try to, you know, set yourself apart from all the other reinsurance companies out there? So the short answer is both, you know, I, 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 I've never had an original thought in my life. So anybody who's got a better idea, uh, I'll, I'll try and, you know, utilize, but you know, we've, we've really fun focused our attention and our product and our skill set around regulatory issues. Yeah around rating issues, around issues of climate. Cyber is obviously a big one right now. Um, uh, um, the protection gap, yep. which is probably bigger outside of the United States, but, but in the United States, it's, it shouldn't be overlooked. It's still a big issue. The amount of, of insurance that isn't purchased when there's a big loss. Yep. Um, so all of our tools are built around growth, capital, volatility management, portfolio management, regulatory issues, rating ADG issues, because that's what occupies the mind of, of the C-suite. You know, as I said, if you just go in and start talking transactional reinsurance, that takes up about that much yep. of their time. The other issues I just described, that takes up all of their time. Yeah. And so we want to live in the C-suite. And so that's what our tools are geared to is to have somebody say, these people can help us. They can help us reach our goals. They can help us meet our objectives. They can help us deal with our challenges. So all of our proprietary tools are built around that. And more importantly, where is this business going and how do I track my business to, to, to follow that? Yeah. Um, and, you know, as I said, if you just look at the homeowners, look at the homeowners business in Florida right now. It is a mess. Totally. Um, and that's going to be a big issue because Florida has a symbiotic relationship between real estate and insurance. Yeah. No insurance, no real estate, no real estate, yeah. no economy. Yeah. And so, you know, that's that's going to be a big challenge for this industry. I think, I think climate change is a huge issue. I think cyber is a huge issue. Um, and so, you know, I think healthy societies is a huge issue. Um, and so that's where we're, we're, we're not thinking about what we are today. It's we're thinking about where is this business going to be 10, 15 years from now? And what are the steps that we have to take so that we don't scratch our head and kick ourselves in the, in the, in the teeth and go, geez, we should have thought about that. We're, we're constantly challenging our model to say, is it fit for purpose? Not now, yeah. but as the world as the world evolves, as risk as, as risk changes. Case in point, 95% of Fortune 500's assets are intangible. Most insurance projects, products are for tangible assets. So how does the industry yeah. start to shift into a world of intangible products as opposed to tangible products? Yeah, I mean, and, that, and to any young person listening to this, this should be getting them perked up and excited because if you are looking, you know, I think some of these other insurance companies or maybe there's a reputation out there that things move so slow, they're not being, you know, proactive. And so hearing your guys' organization is kind of on the cutting edge and looking 15 years, 20 years down the pipeline, that should get some of these young people excited. I think one last, I think one last thing, Regan, is, you know, we are the unfortunate recipients of decades of neglect as result respects diversity and inclusion, yeah. um, equity, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. And so one of our big moves is to change that. Yeah. It, it's not going to happen under my tenure as much as fast as we like, but we've put it in place. We want to attract, you know, people from different backgrounds, different genders, different races, because our business has to be a portfolio of people like our client base yeah. is a portfolio of clients. And, you know, you walk into a room and there's three senior women and you got eight old white guys like me. <laughs> You know, not good. 
you know? No, for sure. I mean, I know I'm a young woman in the industry and most meetings I go to, there's not another female even there. So I, I get it. And it's, it's it, I won't say it was malicious or, or malintended neglect, but it was neglect. Yeah. And, you know, I, we have more and more women entering our workforce and they are fantastic. Yep. They're, they're wonderful uh, reinsurance brokers and, and highly skilled at what they do. Yeah. And, you know, we want to do the same thing, you know, with people of color as well yep. to make sure that, you know, we have a portfolio of people and, and, and diverse points of view. And I think what's lost in all this is diversity and equity is fine. The key is inclusion. Yep. As, as, I, as the woman who runs DEI for Chubb, Ivy Kazinga, I heard her say this once, and it's absolutely right. Diversity is being asked to the dance. Inclusion is being asked to dance. Yeah. And I thought those were very powerful yeah. and, and, and words. I really appreciate you today being on the insurance chatter. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Reagan. I appreciate it. I hope I hope it has some impact because it's a wonderful business. And as, as I said, it's it's hidden. Most people don't have any idea that it exists. That is a wrap for the chatter this week. If you like what you heard here today, join us each week to stay up to date on the insurance trends, best practices, and emerging technologies that are disrupting the insurance industry.